and welcome to Sadna in Books, a podcast about spiritual practice and wisdom. While this podcast is intended to be listened to, there exists an experiential part of Sadna in Books on Patreon, where we practice early morning sadhana and lead book discussions. Everyone is welcome to participate and deepen their spiritual practice in this way. This podcast is my attempt to open the doors to some of the world's largest spiritual writings and to describe them in detailed and objective way, so even if you didn't get the chance to read the book, you'll get a good picture of it. My name is Zita Harkaran, and in this episode we are going to untangle the wonderful and rich world of Bhagavad Gita, chapters 1 to 3. Bhagavad Gita is a text that looms large, not only in Hindu history, but it is highly revered by the whole world. So let's take a look at the meaning of the title. This is where I got really surprised, pleasantly surprised. Bhagavad means literally fortunate, blessed. It is the same as in Slavic God, Bog, Boha. In Polish, there is bogaty, meaning rich. In Slovakian, it is bohati, also means rich. In Serbo-Croatian, bogat. In Russian, bogaty. All means wealth, but it, uh, but it could be more described as, as blessed, as filled with God, filled with divine energy. Um, and Gita means a song. So, discovering this, how close that Bhagavad Gita is actually close to my native Slovakian language was absolutely mind-blowing for me, because for a long time I thought of Sanskrit as this foreign language and foreign culture. But as I'm studying it more and more, my mind is blown up, not only with similarities to Slovakian, but it is Indo-European language that is very similar to English, also to Romance languages, to Greek language, Gaelic language, and so on. So Bhagavad Gita, meaning divine or blessed song, was written somewhere in the second half of the first millennium BCE in Sanskrit. Right? It is part of the larger epic called Mahabharata, and uh, is attributed to authorship of a great sage called Vyasa. But most likely, though, it existed as an oral tradition beforehand. Actually, all Sanskrit writings, including Vedas, uh, first existed only as oral tradition. But later on, as more and less and less people re remember them, they started to be written down for the posteriority, right? It's all sort of similar to what happened with fairy tales. At the end of 18, beginning of 19th century, that started to be written down by Green Brothers or Hans Christian Andersen um, because people were moving in the industrial age into the cities and they were forgetting the old stories of their grandmothers. The reason why we know these uh, old for fairy tales right now is because these few people uh, took it as their life work to write them down for, for us in the future. 
very similar thing happened with um, Bhagavad Gita and with the whole Mahabharata and uh, actually the whole practice of the Vedas, including Upanishads. So, and actually when they were, start, when they were first transcribed or written down, um, the writers were focusing very much on the pronunciation of it. That was the most important factor of them. So it is clear that they understood the importance of the sound current. That the, sound, that the story doesn't just travel through the meaning, but that it travels through the sound. And through the sound, it creates certain emotions within you and uh, kind of awakens certain memories within you. So these early scribes were f very, very focused on the writing down the correct pronunciation of the Sanskrit. Also, let's take a look at who were these Indo-European tribes and people. They were, they had certain characteristics to them that other people didn't have. So it will be relevant to us talking about Bhagavad Gita because one of the main characteristics of the Indo-European people were they had domesticated animals and that they use horses for in their battle. And they also were able to use chariot. So this is the same chariot that Greeks used to use, right? Uh, other common traits were fire ceremonies. So they clearly believed in one set of gods. Later, these gods were given different names, but they were all like under one umbrella. And there was a certain feistiness to them. You know, they were not the peace-loving people as we think they were. Are very adventurous. Sometimes we get the idea of people who spoke Sanskrit as these the most highly revered people, as if uh, they were not even humans, but they were just like me and you, right? They just had a different understanding about life, and Bhagavad Gita helps us to understand how they perceive the world a little bit. So, Bhagavad Gita is composed. Uh, out of of 700 verses which are now divided into 18 chapters and as I said before in this episode I'm going to describe the first three chapters and the whole series will probably have four episodes so then we'll speed it up a little bit so here we go chapter one named the war within so the first chapter starts with description of many family names that have gathered on a battlefield. Uh, Arjuna is there as our hero and he's the warrior prince. It's important. I do want to stress the importance of chariot, even though it's not clearly written out like that in Bhagavad Gita, but it is important. So uh, chariots signified high rank, right? You had to be from uh, high rich family in order to be able to afford chariot um, and they were very highly priced instruments in the war um, they're they were like uh, tanks or fighter jets that we have now except they were private and people after the battle they would start collecting the chariots 
They were not used for transportation. They were just used because actually people didn't have roads. And for chariot, you need a straight road. So uh, they were just used for a beginning of attack. And uh, it was highly specialized operation needing two people. So you would have a, a warrior, which was Arjuna, who would hold a bow and an arrow. That was the actual uh, weapon, right? And then you would have your charioteer, which in this case is Krishna, and he would hold the horses and direct the horses where, where they need to go. So this setup and the explanation of the chariot and the charioteer and Arjuna as the prince is highly symbolic. It signifies that on the battlefield of life, among the noise and fear and busyness, there is a warrior who has to take action. And uh, this, this warrior is like the soul that is within you. The body is represented by the chariot. And this chariot is pulled by five horses, which signify your five senses. And if you ever worked with animals or know horses, they can be easily spooked and can be hard to control, especially horses. They're big animals. And, and that's, that's also like the senses. They're very easily uh, kind of stimulated and they will easily pull you in certain direction where you don't want to go. So, um, and then Lord Krishna, as the charioteer, represents the wise counsel and the ability to hold the reins of the sensory experience. And this wise counsel is something that we call Atman, that's a seed of the soul that is within all of us. That is the self that is within us all and is connected with the divine uh, force, right? So, and just like it is hard to hear your charioteer among the busyness of life and in the busyness of the battle, among all these things happening, right? The horses, the people, then your, you have to focus on your action. The same way it is still so hard to be able to go deeply within and to listen to your own inner guidance. Okay, so even though the setting takes place or starts at the middle of the battlefield, that's not the case for the rest of the story. But it is important to note because this is a life and death situation for Arjuna, right? He is uh, literally facing challenge that could kill him and could kill also. Um, so the advice that Krishna will start giving him is um, some of the advice that we can take for much lesser circumstances. Lots of times I heard people describe Arjuna as some kind of a weakling prince who is losing his courage. Um, but to me, he is just portrayed unabashedly and honestly in the most realistic human sense. He's not portrayed like an idealistic hero. He is just portrayed as a human being, 
as so that we can all sympathize with him. He is not a weakling, nor he is losing courage. He is just going through the motion and going through his rational process. The first line he says, Arjuna says, is, I want to see those who desire to fight with me, with whom all of this battle is fought. So he wants to see the evildoers. That's a very brave act, right? You want to see who, who are you actually going to kill? <laughs> who are you going to chop heads? Or who are you going to meet your swords with? Um, so he wants to be informed. Um, but what he sees on the other side are his own relatives and kings he revered for a long time and uh, people he knew and he is in shock and he is he does not think he's going to be able to pull a bow and arrow at these people he is at the point where he doesn't even care about victory uh, he doesn't even care about his own death but he does not want to kill um, because he understands that with killing them he would also ruin their the, the lives of their children, the lives of their uh, wives and sisters and many other people. And it, it would probably brought up more revenge and more anger in, in, that, in that side. So, so he just sits on the ground and he's like in despair, right? And this is how the first chapter ends. So let's take a look at the second chapter called Self-Realization. The second chapter is when Krishna appears on a scene and um, takes a conversation or to a completely different direction. He gives a very large perspective for Arjuna to consider. He says, this despair and weakness in time of crisis are mean and unworthy of you. Arise and destroy the enemy. And this is the point where many people stumble and are not able to go beyond this point. Because they think like, oh, Krishna is the spiritual master. Why is he asking him to kill people, right? But he says this is a moment of crisis, that means crossroads, and that means that there were actions that were going on and building up beforehand, just like two roads were coming on opposite direction, and they inevitably had to come to a crossroad situation. And this is where Arjuna and Krishna are right now. They are in at the time of crisis and the act is needed this is not the time to ponder this is not the time to figure things out this is time to act but arjuna is like my will is paralyzed i am utterly confused what can overcome a sorrow that saps all my vitality and it, this is a very good question right and we can Maybe imagine being in a similar position where you are at the important moment in your life, but the moment is so draining and so confusing and it's, it's like sapping your energy. 
Sometimes it happens to young people when they're about to start their independent life, right? And all of a sudden they have all these options. They're in a moment of crisis, but they just can't decide which path to take. And the indecision is literally sapping their energy. They feel like they have all this energy to give to the world, but as if the world was not wanting it or something like that. But that just means you are at the crossroads and you need to make a decision. And whatever decision you make, that is how you're going to continue to live. So this is when Krishna comes with truly big guns, right? He's like, okay, but your sorrow has no cause. The wise grieve neither for the living nor for the dead. There has never been a time where you and I and the kings gathered here have not existed, nor will there be time when we will cease to exist. Wow. He gives Arjuna the biggest perspective you can possibly have. That there is life beyond this body and this life will go on. The body is a temporary household. Krishna says that it is a game in which one believes he is slayed and another is a slayer. As soon as you die, you'll get a new body. Uh, but there is self within you, the self that cannot be pierced or burned, made wet or dry. These are Krishna's words. And knowing this, you should not grieve. I know that it might be hard to absorb this uh, perspective. We are taught from every side and every corner in our culture today to take care of our body, to help it live longer and healthier, and to make it comfortable and to make it feel pleasure and happiness. We don't hear talk about uh, the infinite soul that kind of lives in the fringes of our awareness. But the, the true spiritual life and spiritual talk, we don't just aim to be calm and peaceful. We actually mean to prioritize the growth of the soul over the wellness of the body. That is called Dharma. So it's, it's a spiritual life and material life, right? Where you care for the material well-being of your body. Or you can care about your dharma, the action of the soul that takes place. Krishna does go into what dharma is. He says, considering your dharma, you should not vacillate. For a warrior, nothing is higher than war against evil. But if you do not participate, you will invite sin, violating your dharma and your honor. So there is something higher to care about than just the body and the sensory experience. Because your dharma lives beyond your body. How many people died early, but their life work because they follow their dharma lives on. It reminds me of Guru Gobind Singh, who was also a fighter, but he was a a peaceful spiritual person right but he felt that he needed to protect india from these invaders and he actually did right because punjab is the area where there is the only entrance 
from the West to India. And maybe if he wouldn't done it, lots of Indian uh, culture and habits and wisdom would be lost. Maybe we wouldn't even have yoga as we know it now. Maybe we wouldn't even have Bhagavad Gita. Because there were many books that were destroyed over the history of the world. Krishna goes a little bit more into the idea of if you live just connecting with material possessions and to um, satisfy the sensory experience of your body, you will always be stuck in a continual rebirth and struggle. So in order to not be stuck in this cycle, quote, you should never engage in action for the sake of reward, nor should you long for inaction. End of quote. Krishna's words. Try to find the state in your mind where you are united in what he called deep samadhi, where you are not affected by the polarities of your senses. And this is how you attain the state of perfect yoga. This is the first time he mentions yoga. So the yoga he understands is not an exercise or a meditation. It is a state that you feel within you. And this is the state that you should um, strive to build up within you continually over the time. Arjuna is hooked and he wants to know more. He's like, hmm, this is really interesting. Is it even possible to live like that? Um, so he asked, tell me of those who live established in wisdom, ever aware of self, O Krishna. How do they talk? How sit? How move about? So he's like, is it possible to live like that? And he, Arjuna, throughout this text, always sounds like, like us, like I always see myself asking that same question, right? Like, okay, yeah, I want to know how I want to live like that. How do they talk? How do they walk? And so on. Krishna says that the way these people use their senses is they use them as a tortoise. Like they have their arms and legs extended when they need, but then when the danger comes, they pull their legs and arms in into the self. He says, just you have to consider that um, when you think of the sensory object, whatever it is, there is an immediate attachment. And the attachment breeds desire, brings possession, and then later even to anger. You want to live free of this sens sensory attachment. And that's where true peace will lie. He says, quote, use all your power to free the senses from attachment and aversion alike and live in the full wisdom of the self with a capital S. Such a self awakes to light in the night of all creatures. And then he says, there are forever free who renounce all selfish desires and break away from ego cage of I, me, and mine. Okay, powerful stuff, right? How can we apply it in today's society? So there are many people right now that um, 
kind of struggle with what's happening in our capitalist society how can we release ourselves out of it and basically the whole capitalist society is based on materialism and on ownership of things on possessing of things and creating of things of course and uh, if we could just uh, build on our, our happiness not on these uh, things because they inevitably uh, create bondage we think we possess them but in reality they possess us and they uh, as if clip our arms and put chains around our neck and then we have to drag and we have to work for them like you have a house and you have to clean the house and pay the rent or pay the mortgage then you have you know every possession requires there is a bondage to it right and then you are afraid that someone's going to take it and so on and so forth so i know this is like a very huge idea and it seems impossible to even uh, comprehend how can that be possible but krishna is going to talk more about it so let's just uh, kind of go for a ride and let's see where he's going to take it chapter three selfless service here arjuna comes with another great question you have said that knowledge is greater than action why do you ask me to wage this terrible war okay so there are two paths jhana and karma one is the wisdom and one is the action and Krishna says, no, no, that's not what I said. I said two of them are important, both of them, the wisdom and the action. And no one can gain perfection by abstaining from work. You know, don't think that you can just um, philosophize here on the sidelines and somehow solve this whole uh, thing. There was time before maybe to think about and to apply wisdom. But now, at this moment of crisis, there is time to take action. So Krishna continues, At the beginning, mankind and the obligation of selfless service were created together. Through selfless service, you will always be fruitful and find fulfillment in your desires. So this is a very important sentence of the Bhagavad Gita that introduces the idea of selfless service and that through working and doing the selfless service you will find fulfillment so instead of trying to find fulfillment in possessing things and collecting things you should actually find fulfillment in taking action not just for yourself but for the others because he says that this is the most essential and dharmic quality of humans to act for another being and he says um, selfless service is the welfare of the world he quote the standards that such people create will be followed by the rest of the world unquote so it's because it is such an essential quality of humans when one starts acting like that everybody else will follow it he comes back with the idea of dharma like 
when you do the selfless service, you are doing your dharma, right? Um, and we will also go into details what the selfless service here is. But there is an interesting idea about the dharma. As Krishna says, quote, It is better to strive in one's own dharma than to succeed in the dharma of another. Nothing is ever lost in following one's own dharma, but competition in another dharma breeds fear and insecurity. End of quote. This is very similar to uh, Friedrich Nietzsche quote when he said, on the mountain of truth you will never climb in vain. Lots of times we maybe have a feeling of, oh, I should do this in my life. I re this really inspires me. But then it's kind of like shut down by, oh, but I will never make money on this. Or I will never succeed in this. Arjuna's case, I might die. <laughs> um, but uh, he says, it's better to fail in your own dharma, in whatever you need to do, whatever it was written for you than to copy someone else's lifestyle or copy how they succeeded in life. That's what we do a lot, right? We see something and they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to do the same thing that they're doing. In this way, the Dharma and selfless service are connected, right? You have that some kind of desire within you to serve and not just work for yourself, but to kind of secure better future for others. It's, it's exactly like, um, imagine you were reincarnated in a next life. What do you wish to have around, in, around you? What do you wish, for, what kind of ideas, what kind of habits, what kind of culture do you wish to, to have survived? Because it might not have to survive if you are not going to take the action about it right or like in the story of green brothers they wanted these stories to survive so they took action that was their dharma here is what arjuna asked also another great question quote what is the force that binds us to selfish needs right why why is this even within us to just like gather these possessions and to feel ourselves happy and so on. Uh, what Krishna says, it comes from, um, he says that, quote, the knowledge is hidden by the selfish desire. So the knowledge is like the ultimate wisdom of life. But it is as, as like a seed is hidden within the pulp of a fruit. If the seed is the knowledge, the pulp is the selfish desire. So, uh, it, you know, it's a, it's a, a natural self-preservation technique. In order for you to share your wisdom, do your dharma, you need to be able to live, right? You can't just die. So um, that's why there is that self-preservation. And we have to navigate these two avenues but Krishna ends at the end of the chapter 3 fight with all your strength Arjuna controlling your senses conquer your enemy the destroyer of knowledge and realization okay so he clearly states here that if he 
allows these people to continue on whatever they are doing, they will destroy knowledge and realization. Meaning realization meaning like realization of God, realization of consciousness or growth of consciousness. That ends the chapter three. Uh, and that is all for today's podcast. Once again, if you like, check out uh, our Patreon where you can also join our book club and read books along with us. And you can also join us for sadhana. Uh, and for now, this is all. I'll be back in two weeks with uh, chapters four to eight of Bhagavad Gita. Okay. Bye. Satnam.